1: and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz, best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary Kusama Infinity. Our special guests today are Sarah Newins and Mina T. Sun. Sarah is an award-winning filmmaker and editor who received primetime Emmy nominations for her work on Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields, and Alan V. Farrow. She also served as editor and writer for On the Record. Mina is a Korean-American filmmaker who is currently in post-production on a documentary about Japan's 2011 tsunami. Sarah and Mina have co-directed two feature documentaries together through their company, Wild Pair Films. Their first documentary, Top Spin, streamed on Netflix. Their new documentary, Racist Trees, will air on PBS.
0: Thank you so much, Claire, for the introduction. And thank you so much, Mina and Sarah, for being here with us today. Mina, for anyone who hasn't seen your new film, Racist Trees, can you please tell us what it's about? Hi, Heather and
2: Claire. Thanks
1: so much for having us. Sure. Racist Trees is a feature documentary about a wall of trees in Palm Springs that separates a historically black community from the city.
0: Oh, dear. It looks like we're having a little bit of interference. Is, are you hearing that too, Claire?
1: Yes. Um, I wonder, um, Mina, did you happen to move to a, a different spot in the room or something? Because earlier we could hear you just fine. Oh, no, no, I haven't. Are you still having problems hearing me? Should I dial in again? Perhaps, uh, perhaps hang up and call back. And then uh, okay. in the meantime, we can speak with Sarah, and then I'll open your mic as soon as you come back in. Okay. All right. Thank you. So, Sarah, um, I, I'm going to have you,
0: if you don't mind, repeat what the what Racist Trees is about. And also you could tell us um, how you first heard about the story and what made you decide to make a documentary about it.
2: Sure. Um, so Racist Trees is about... A wall of 60-foot tamarisk trees um, that are have been separating a historically black neighborhood from the rest of Palm Springs for for decades. Um, and recently, more recently, the community started to feel as though those trees were a symbol of racism, and so we and hence dubbed the racist trees. And so we. Um, read about this in the local newspaper, The Desert Sun. There was a real extensive coverage, uh, article on this, on this story and how this has been sort of plaguing the community for, for many, many years. And it was on the front page, and there was this picture of this wall of trees. I mean, these tamarisk trees are a sight to see. they are branches top to bottom, and they're just an eyesore, and they have, you know, they're, they're actually a salt So they drop needles everywhere and there's all this debris and they're, and they're just, you know, problematic. And they line the property of, of the homeowners who um, uh, share a property line with a city owned golf course. And the city therefore of Palm Springs is responsible for maintaining them, which they haven't been doing. And so there was an article about this that we read and Nina and I, um, Having made a our first feature that was wonderful, but took us all over the world. <laughs> um, it was followed young table tennis players who were trying to make the Olympics, who would train in China and all these other places. And we thought maybe our next film could be something a little closer to home. And so when I saw this and saw the visual of the trees, I was like, Nina, we have to look into this. This is this is wild story, and it it felt so visual. It was such a um, you know, the trees really form this physical barrier. And uh, and then we also just hadn't, had not known after all the times we'd been to Palm Springs that there was a historically black neighborhood there. And so, you know, we really thought if there was a blind spot for us that this neighborhood existed, then perhaps there would be for many other people. And so that's that's kind of what, what started it all. It's really an interesting story. And I certainly
0: had never heard about it either. Um Mina, are you back with us?
1: I am. I believe you can hear me. I, I can't. Well, let's
0: give it a try. It's a little choppy. If it doesn't work out, I guess we'll have to have Sarah take the lead. Sorry, this is uh, the the disadvantage of being live. Um, but uh, Mina, could you walk us through the steps of how you got started making the film? Like, what, what were the first things you did? Sure. And the first Oh you know I'm so sorry I can already tell unfortunately we're having bad audio I really apologize we've I've actually never had this happen but I'm going to I'm going to under the circumstances I'm going to go ahead and let Sarah take the lead if uh if that's okay uh sorry that's the that's the joys of going live so um Sarah could you talk to us a little bit about the steps how you got started making the film like what were the first things you did
2: yeah, sure. So uh, essentially, the the story, having you know been heavily researched and written about um, by Corinne Kennedy for the Desert Sun, our first stop was reaching out to her um, and seeing about um, you know if she had uh, connections or, or if she could make some introductions to see if the community would be open to us um, documenting their um, process of trying to get these trees removed. Um, and so, you know, she was really, really incredibly instrumental in, in introducing us to the, the keep. I mean, it is a small neighborhood, so she knew exactly who were the, the most, you know, um, uh, involved and in, in who are, the, you know, the, the real activists around this. And so that was sort of our first stop. Um, and you meet all those people that she introduced us to in the documentary, Um, the first being uh, Trey Daniel, who um, is uh, actually a white resident. So this neighborhood is small, 76 homes, but in recent years started to gentrify. And, um, you know, I think it was Trey who once he moved to the neighborhood, started talking to neighbors and asking, you know, what's going on here? And they were, and many of the residents said, yes, we've been trying for a very long time to get these trees removed and the city has just not responded. And so I think it was, it was really through meeting him and Charles Metcalf and Kevin Williams, two other residents who have are part of generations of families that have grown up in this neighborhood. Um, and their combined efforts that really started to wake up the city. So that was like, you know, step one was just talking to all the, the people who would want to talk to us. And I think it became clear fairly quickly that the added attention of a documentary would kind of put pressure on, on the city council to do something. So I think it was like a mutually beneficial thing, which you never know uh, with, when you're making documentaries, you know, sometimes as a filmmaker, it can feel like, you know, you never want to feel like you're parachuting in, taking someone's story, and then leaving, right, and making your own, you know, and, and having your own journey with it. This was really um, wonderful in that we, um, we were working together, you know, um, in a way that I think, I hope, helped the community. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk
0: about um, these issues of, yeah, how you got um, connected with the community and learned about their story. And I am wondering um, about, um, so obviously you've already said you started talking with them and and was it a process to earn their trust or did you feel like you were just kind of instantly aligned? How did that part go? Um,
2: Well, certainly it's, I I think a process with, with any film where you hopefully can find the balance between you know turning the camera on and turning it off and trying to connect with people to make sure that this is something they're they're comfortable with um, and so um, I think in this case again I think it it, it fairly quickly felt like the right like a, like a good fit for us to be there because we knew that you know adding the like contributing to the the spotlight putting the putting the city council essentially like on the hot seat to do something about these trees that were depressing the property values. I mean that was the main thing that the community was really frustrated about was that you know it wasn't just that these trees were felt like a symbol of, you know, racial segregation or like a vestige of segregation, but they were preventing the property owners from enjoying the golf club views and the mountain views and all these things that people move to Palm Springs for. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know a lot about Palm Springs, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like a, a resort town and it's been marketed for decades as like this, you know, oasis away from, um, you know, from the city. There are a lot of, uh, you know, Hollywood, there was this, decade or decades of like Hollywood Glamour of Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe and all these people who would have their homes in Palm Springs um to with, you know, pools and, and um anyway, so it, it was marketed as this oasis, even before the the, the Hollywood days, but still this community felt like they, they couldn't uh reap the same benefits that a lot of white property owners, you know, could.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, As you were um, researching the film and the history of the area, what did you find most surprising? I, I have to say, having seen the film, there are a lot of surprising things. But for you, what was the most surprising?
2: Well, yeah. So, thank you for asking that question because this is like the thing that really, like, changed our whole learning. The history of Palm Springs is really what sort of shifted our whole process because initially Mina and I as independent filmmakers thought, Oh, well we want to make a short, you know, there's this interesting thing going on these communities trying to remove these trees. Like that there's a beginning, middle and end, right. To that (laughs) ostensibly, we hope there's an end. Um, And then we started to do dig deeper into the history of Palm Springs. And once we learned that there was this like horrific legacy of, um, you know, just, like, back in the 50s and 60s of, you know, not just housing discrimination, but a a specific, like, forced displacement and removal of communities of color from the center of town so that the city could develop their land. And, you know, it it just, it it was so heartbreaking to read about what um the families who lived on section 14 went through and not only displaced but were not given anywhere to relocate and so you know it, it just greatly depleted the the black community in palm springs and has had a lasting effect and so you know that was really like that other layer of the the, the history that i know i don't think a lot of people know about so i think we certainly didn't so that's when we actually decided okay there's a there's a larger story here, we could make this into a feature. Um, And then fortunately we found the right, you know, production partners who could help us, you know, um, indie filmmakers (laughs) find the resources to then continue to film for the next few years and edit the film yeah it, there's definitely layer after layer of um
0: surprises with this film it's it's um you know when I started to watch it I didn't expect all the backstory so um I think people will be quite interested in it um from a production standpoint, I wonder what was the most challenging part of making the film and since you already started to talk about teaming up um with uh with others and and giving funding, maybe you could talk about that like what was the most challenging part and how did the The resources fall into place so that you could fund the film.
2: Um, Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, for the first, gosh, what was it? We started in two thousand and seventeen, so I have to think back. So for the first two years, three years, we, you know, would just we, Mina and I both have other jobs to pay the (laughs) bills. And so we would just go sporadically when we could to, you know, when we heard about community meetings or um, if there were things that, you know, felt like we're moving the story along. The two of us would just go, um, or you know, I was. We would bring along Jerry Henry, who was, who was our fantastic DP, who really elevated the whole thing um, in terms of finding like a look that would fit this, like, very specific tone that we were going after. Um, and so it was a really small, scale down you know, crew for the first few years. Um, and then um, we joined forces with Joanna Sokolowski, who was an amazing producer that I had known and worked with previously, who, um, you know, just really helped With all, I mean, producers are, I think, never thanked enough. They they do so much incredible work um, to to find the right, you know, partnerships and dig up the right resources. And um, eventually, we um, made. Sorry, this is kind of a long-winded story, but we made a pilot initially because at the time there were things like um, that were on that were like short-form series that were doing quite well streaming online. And so this pilot got us into the South by Southwest film festival in 2020, which unfortunately was canceled due to the pandemic. And so we never got to like, you know, go and experience that. But fortunately there were still industry people who could access all of the films that were in the festival. And that is when Wayfair studios saw our little pilot and, and, you know, asked for a meeting and then we um, actually, well, anyway, we, yeah, there's another, anyway, sorry. I'm, there, there was a few other steps to that, but anyway, we ended up partnering with Wayfarer Studios and um, they were really excited about making the feature version um, and essentially like we're just there from the, from 2020 onward. Um, until we premiered at in 2022 at the IDFA Film Festival in Amsterdam, so they were really there and locked up with us, um, and also helped uh, brought aboard a producer uh, Courtney Parker who was in the trenches with us as well, like going you know out into the community and really helping us shape the story. And we ha- you know we really did have to do quite a bit of research to make sure we were getting it right. Yeah,
0: I've never heard – I've heard of filmmakers having all sorts of problems connected with the pandemic and festivals getting um, canceled, but I've never heard this story before of someone actually having a, a series, a docu-series, and then um, evolving into, you know, changing it into a feature. So it's super interesting. Um, now, obviously, you know, you're an editor, and you edited this film, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the editorial process, especially given what you've just said, and, and um, you know, how you approach documentary editing in general, and if there are any tips you can share. share.
2: Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> editing documentaries is so hard, <laughs> um, as I'm, as you know, Heather. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to, like, think of succinct tips because I think each subject matter sort of, like, requires, like, a little bit of a different process. Um, like, for example, you know, this film is really interview-driven. So we were working with a lot of scripts, and, you know, Joanna was um, building like she was pouring through transcripts of all of our interviews. I mean we we tried to interview every every person in the community who wanted who was willing to talk to us and so there were dozens of interviews there and of course we wanted as many of the city council members to participate as well and we ended up only having one agree to speak to us but I think he he does a great job of communicating their position. Um and um, yeah, and so I think there was just this feeling that we knew the story would have to work on paper, whereas, like, with a verite-driven film, it's less about finding finding it on the page and more about, you know, assembling each scene and finding the arc through the footage. And, you know, I mean, there's – yeah, so it's like there's a little bit of a different process there. Um, but, you know, I – Um, I I largely edit our films and my films just because it's such an, it's such a, it's a a lot of times the biggest line item on, on budgets. And so it was always kind of like a, out of necessity. um, Because that's, you know, also what I do to make a living. So um, it started like that. And then I just got so completely obsessed with it, with it, (laughs) that I wanted to keep going, even though part of me was like, oh, it'd be nice to hire another editor. But we we did have several additional editors to help kind of, you know, dig me out of some holes that I found myself into when, you know, a lot of times you feel like a little too close to it as a director and an editor. And so I definitely had a lot of support in the uh, the edit room.
0: Yeah, it's always helpful to have fresh eyes, but I know you're a super talented editor also. And I am curious, the docu-series that you had originally, is that, Going to be available anywhere, or is that kind of something that just got cannibalized and turned into the feature?
2: Yeah, it was. It was just a, a pilot that we had only gotten as far as a pilot. So that actually, like in large part, ended up being the first chapter of the feature-length film, Racist Trees*. So, um, yeah, we have our film. Have actually, decided. Yeah, so we decided to. Um, Separate the film into into five chapters, and so it was sort of like pivoting our docu series idea into the feature. Um, so there is, yeah, so there's no series.
0: I see. I see. Okay. That makes sense. You did say it was, um, yeah, it wasn't fully completed. So, okay. And then um, how long do you think um, documentary filmmakers should plan to edit a 90 minute film in general? I know there are a lot of variables, but just kind of, um, you know, an estimate of what you think people should plan on.
2: Sure. So, I mean, there's a rule of thumb that I believe originated with, the great editor, Kim Roberts, who, who suggested that you spend one month in the edit room for every 10 minutes on screen. So that for a 90-minute film, nine months would be like a good estimate. Um, however, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of films that, you know, take, can can go beyond that. And I do find that, generally speaking, when I'm hired for jobs, I'm almost always extended beyond the target end date. Um, and I think that's just due to the, the nature of editing being so much trial and error. And, you know, hopefully you're able to do some test screening and adjust the story based on the feedback you're getting along the way. And so those things can definitely extend the process. But of course, the challenge is that there's not always the funding to extend the edit. And I've also heard a lot of um, editors, you know, frustrated in the last couple of years by the shrinking um, timelines for edits, but particularly in series uh, work, there's, um, you know, ones that are already have like streamers on board and are being asked to cut you know, a sixty-minute episode in like fourteen weeks or something. Um, so it's, it's it's interesting and it's sort of shrinking. Um, but if you're if you're on a project that has a lot of resources, I mean, I, I worked on on the record for eighteen months in the edit. So, and that's a ninety-minute film, ninety four or five minutes, something like that. Yeah, it's definitely time consuming and I I understand
0: what you're saying about there just being so many ways you can edit it and fine tune it and everything. So um but funding is always um so challenging with these documentaries for indie filmmakers and so I guess to go back to to the funding, I know that you worked with um ITVS which is like super prestigious and um you know, just such a sought after um thing for uh, documentary filmmakers, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process and, and like how far along were you when, when they got involved? I know you had other, um, people you were working with, like you mentioned Wayfair Studios, and so, like, how, how far along were, were you when ITVS got involved?
2: So we actually, um, were really fortunate to, um, have, that sort of dream scenario of finishing the film, you know, independently and then going on the festival circuit. Um, and, you know, I think it, it seems to be happening less and less now where films are, you know, find their distribution in in the festival world. Or, you know, but we, we were really fortunate that we had, you know, a, a lovely um, film festival run. And um, at one of the festivals, someone from ITBS saw it and brought it to um, their team. And then, you know, it it actually happened pretty quickly. Lois Fawson reached out to us and and just said all of the most magical, wonderful things you'd want anyone to say of, like, truly understanding what we were trying to communicate in making the film. And she articulated every single one so beautifully that it was just like, okay, there is no question here. Like, these are the right partners for us. Um, well, that, that's helpful yeah. to understand um, that, yeah, so, so
0: the film, in your case, was, was already um, done. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's interesting. Um, so you mentioned you've already had, um, you know, you've played festivals, but you're about to have the broadcast premiere. And so I'm wondering if you could just share with our audiences um, who haven't had an opportunity to see the film yet, um, you know, when they'll be able to see it and, um, and where.
2: Oh, absolutely, yes. I, I i don't think I said Lois Boston from Independent Lens. So um, Lois Boston is the executive producer at this, you know, incredible series, Independent Lens. That's, I wish I knew how long it's been around, but a long time championing independent film. Um, and they have a, a broadcast every Monday night, you know, for a large chunk of the year. I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to misstate what, you know, the exact length of the of the season, but um, in any case, our film will be premiering on January twenty second at ten p.m. Check your local listings, <laughs> um, and yeah, that's our national PBS broadcast. And then there's a possibility that the SoCal station will be running it um, on I think the twenty seventh. So I you know I think unfortunately I can't say certain about that just yet but it'll be it'll it should be easy to find if you look up um, independent lens um, you know uh, racist trees on independent lens website great and I know um, different
0: filmmakers approach this in different ways but I'm wondering um, if the people featured in the film, did they see it before it was on the festival circuit or after? And, and how has their reaction been?
2: Um, well, that, that was uh, probably one of the greatest moments with, in this whole process is um, being able to share the, the finished piece with the community And we were given that opportunity at the Palm Springs International Film Festival last January um, at the Palm Springs Art Museum, the theater in there, which is just a beautiful venue. Um, And I think it has something like 300 seats or something. And, um, you know, it was... I think almost the entire community, the Lawrence-Crosley neighborhood community came out, as well as other individuals from Palm Springs who, you know, we heard over and over didn't even know that that neighborhood was there. So there were people who were actually living in Palm Springs and didn't know that the Lawrence-Crosley neighborhood, also known as Crosley Tract, was, you know, in this far off corner of Palm Springs. Um, And so it was, it was really um, quite moving, you know, to see uh, people both inside and outside of the community responding to the film. Um, and I think in large part, it felt like, you know, people were were really happy with their representation, which was, you know, something that as an outsider of the community was always a real concern and, and something we really put a lot of thought into. And, you know, got as much consultation as we could to to do that. So Well good. It's always
0: exciting when the people in your films are excited about them. Um I'm wondering what kind of advice um you would offer to um first time filmmakers.
2: Um you know I I always feel like I, I always wonder about my answer to this question. I don't, cause I don't want it to feel like a platitude, but it's really just comes from my own experience, which is like, you kind of just have to go out and make it, make something, and not wait for permission. Um, like, you know, I, I think that was one reason why I chose to focus on documentary versus scripted films. I think was with scripted films, you need all these people to, like, come on board before you go get to make something. Whereas, like, with a documentary, really all you need is you, yourself and a camera at the end of the day. And, of course, it's nice to have more resources and more support than that. But, you know, I think, like, at first, if I think back to starting out, it was very much trying to have fun and, like, have, like, discover new things and, and get some kind of creative Um, you know, juices flowing, I guess. And then, you know, for me also, it was really important to um, have editing credits to get hired to edit other people's films. So there was a real advantage to me having made my own and editing my own film to then have, you know, a little bit of a body of work to point to and say, like, this is what I can do. And, you know, it just... um, Became, yeah, it became like creating my own opportunities, I guess. So I, I don't know. I hope there's something to, to glean in there for people who are starting out.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And you also said something earlier that I think is super relevant, which is that um, your first um, documentary you made with Mina Topspin, you were traveling all over the world, which I also experienced with my film, and how that mm-hmm. um, made you realize that you could tell a great story, you know, closer to home, and it's a lot less expensive, so um, I think that's important too. And and um, speaking of um, Top Spin, um, it, um, I would love it if you also tell people where they can see that film. It's it's really terrific, and maybe you can just remind them what it's about.
2: Um, sure, yeah. So, so Top Spin um, is about three American teenagers who um, – have to sacrifice a lot to try to become the top players in the U S in order to compete in the Olympics. And this was at the time, the 2012 Olympics in London was the, was the goal. And we, um, Mina and I um, having, we actually met in in grad school and co-directed a short film on one of these young, table tennis players who at the time was a junior champion and was 14 years old. And so we made a little short on uh, Ariel Shane, um, who, um, you know, was, was just such a joy to watch play and to see her, you know, being coached by her dad. And, you know, there was, um, there was just such a a lovely feel good (laughs) story there. Um, that when we heard she was going to try to make the Olympic team, Nina and I had just, we graduated um, film school and were like, you know, maybe we can follow her for the next year and make a feature. And then we decided that there were some other top players that we could follow. And, you know, we knew there was like a tried and true thing out and in the world of like kids in competition documentaries. And so it sort of felt like for our first feature, we could sort of try to, emulate that to some degree um, and really figure out how to do, how to do this. And so, um, so that was the story that we followed. Um, yeah. And as far as where to see it, you know, it, it's a good question. Because <laughs> it was streaming for a long time, but I'm not sure that it's available on – it's not available on Netflix anymore. I don't think it's available on Amazon Prime. But we have a website – um, topspinmovie.com and there is definitely a link to download it there.
0: Great. I, You know, I, I know um, I uh, streamed it for my students not long ago, but I'm not remembering where, but it might be on through, you know, if you have a library. Oh, yeah. Um, card. You can typically see some amazing films through Canopy Streaming, and I think this might be one of them, but I guess people have to check. And certainly your website would be the the first resource. Um, and um, I'm especially disappointed right now that, that the connection didn't work with uh, Mina. She was traveling, but um, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about co-directing and what that's like and any tips you may have for people who are interested in co-directing a film.
2: Well, since Nina's not here, I'm just going to take all the credit now. Um <laughs> I um No, I uh I'm sad that she dropped out too cuz um she's I often refer to Mina as my creative soulmate um because we uh met so long ago in grad school and just ha- knew pretty pretty quickly that um you know, we we had a very complementary collaboration like you know it was just a wonderful dynamic from the outset because i think we each had strengths that we kind of filled in each other's strengths and weaknesses if that makes sense no. um and so uh and so you know for example um mina is more of a produced like she's her strengths are in producing and so she took on the brunt of that, particularly with Topsten. That was, like, it was really, like, the two of us, like, just the two of us the whole time. You know, we shot and, and um, just, you know, we went out in the field and we, we, we shot and recorded sound for everything. And then when we were um, in the post-production, I handled more of the post-responsibilities. So we were able to kind of wear all the hats together simultaneously um, and you know we were really betting on ourselves at the time having just come out of grad school and not really having study jobs or anything and just putting everything we could using crowdfunding because you know no there was no one around to, to say you know here's a pile of money go make your first teacher <laughs> that doesn't usually happen I don't think um, and so uh, so in that sense you know we we having gone through that we, we really at that point knew that we had a, a combined skill set that was really advantageous and then um and then after that decided it's time to to make some you know pay some bills and make some money and so we kind of had from there had to figure out how to pursue our individual um careers and then also be able to keep making independent films so it, it, there was that's why there's a number of years between the first and second film um and and then in this case you know we with Reese's Trees we really like were doing it in fits and starts like through the years when we when we had pockets of time to do so and that was another reason of wanting to do something closer to home and so I hope that answers your question I don't know if I, yeah, yeah, it does. I think the (laughs) complimentary skill sets and, you know, getting along
0: so well and, you know, getting to make a movie with, you know, somebody you have a close friendship with, it sounds, you know, like an amazing thing. Uh, So you've mentioned you work on um, your projects that you direct and and edit, and you edit for other people, too. And I I know sometimes people are able to talk about what they're currently working on, and sometimes it's a secret. But I wonder if there's anything you're currently working on that you can share with us.
1: Um, That's a great
2: question, Heather. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that. Well, well, don't feel pressured. I don't (laughs)
0: <laughs> don't, don't get in don't get yourself in trouble here so okay but people um for anyone who would like to follow your career um could you please share your social media handles website and things like that
2: sure yeah um we uh well it's it's i guess pretty contained if it is to point to com, which is the production company that mina and i started years ago, and um, we also are on Instagram at Wild Pair Films, and there's um, information on, you know, the stuff we do together, but also stuff we've done individually, and so, you know, like, most recently, I'm sorry I can't say much about the projects I'm currently editing, but the project that I finished, um, the last project I finished is called, uh, as an editor, is called Pretty Baby Brook Shields. Um, which is streaming on Hulu currently um, and has, was a, um, was a really incredible project to work on. And, um, you know, I, I have to say working with Lana Wilson, the director, was one of my favorite um, collaborations outside of, you know, the stuff that I get to co-direct. Um, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. And Lana has a vision to, not just look back at you know, Brooke Shields' life, which you know, she became famous when she was a baby, so she's been famous her entire life, but also really looking at the, the wider culture and um, how you know, the oversexualization of young women has really shaped um, how we view ourselves and how society views us and has crossed the line in many ways. And so I think it was really smart to... Uh, approach the story that way
0: yeah it's a great film so for anyone who hasn't seen it i highly recommend it i know um we mentioned in the introduction also that nina is also currently working on a film about the 2011 tsunami in japan so hopefully we'll be able to invite her on to talk about that when it's done and on a day when we have a, a connection that's working and um I'm also wondering if there's anything else you would like to add that I haven't asked you about already.
2: Well, I just want to quickly mention, since I failed to, uh, when you asked me about the broadcast, is that um, aside from airing on television, the the film, uh, Racist Trees, will be available to stream on PBS online for I think it's 60 days um, after the broadcast. So if people miss, miss it, they can stream it online. Well, great. Thank you
0: for sharing that. And I'm sure people will be excited to see it. And um, I thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Heather. I hope, I hope uh, that sounded okay. I was sad Nina couldn't um, continue with us. But um, we really both uh, appreciate you giving our, our film a, a little platform to talk about it. So thank you. Oh, yeah, my
0: pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work, and so, yeah, and thanks, everyone, for listening today.
1: Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com.